0: Welcome back, Undertow faithful. We are happy to spend another evening with you here in the Undertow. Uh, we're talking Kill or Be Killed number 19, uh, the penultimate issue of the ongoing Baker and Phillips book, Kill or Be Killed, uh, from Image Comics. This is, of course, the Undertow podcast, the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Uh, my name is Robert Watson. On the other end of the
1: line, I have my more qualified co-host, Bubba Beasley very glad to be here. Sorry I missed uh, last time, but you you did you did good flying solo and I'm very glad to be back even even if I'm a, a still a little under the weather from a from a cold I picked up from my daughter. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bubba's been fighting a cold all week, but uh so we are it's a Friday evening here and we're going to get the episode recorded before uh number the big number 20 comes out which happens uh next Wednesday. So that will be the conclusion uh, for now, of Killer Be Killed. So obviously, lots to talk about this evening. Um, as always, you can find our episodes, undertow.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes. You can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com, or at undertowpodcast on Twitter. And again, we always appreciate fans reaching out, kind of letting us know um, what they like about the show and what's going on in their world. Um, did want to give a shout-out to Kevin Sells. Uh, he's, a, he's a faithful listener of the Undertow podcast, and we uh, correspond fairly frequently on Twitter. Um, he sent me a, a recommendation the other week about the Prague Coup from Hard Case Crime, which is due to be released in December. I'm excited to check that book out. I had not heard about it yet. Um, but yeah, big thanks to Kevin for reaching out and uh, keeping in touch with us. We appreciate hearing from fans, and uh, encourage other listeners to do the same. I'm going to hand things off here to Bubba. I know he's got several news items to uh, catch us up on. Just this week there's been a bunch of big news in the world of of Brewbaker and Phillips, so I will hand things off to Bubba.
1: Yes, and I'm I'm going to have to go back and see that tweet from from Kevin cuz I'm a huge hard case crime fan and and I don't think that book, yeah, yeah, just checking. Uh, the book's not listed on the site yet, so very cool. Um but yes, a lot of news. Um all revolving around the end of this um, monthly series, Kill or Be Killed, and the beginning of uh, – or, or the announcement for what's next, their, their upcoming uh, projects. Um, number one is that this uh, final issue, uh, Kill, or be, Kill or Be Killed 20, will come with a virgin variant uh, cover. What that means is that there will be two covers um, on newsstands. And a virgin variant is, is just one with the artwork, the virgin artwork without the, the trade dress, without the, the, the title, the image logo, the, the credits. It's um, just the artwork itself. And in this case it's uh, the very striking artwork of, uh, of Dylan you know walking away from his life as the, the vigilante. in homage to uh, John Ramita seniors, um, very famous, iconic uh, Spider-Man cover. So there's a Virgin variant uh, next week. Uh, I'd also direct readers to an a, uh, interview that uh, Brubaker and Phillips have uh, have given on uh, comic book resources, uh, CBR, comicbookresources.com. Uh, particularly if you haven't uh, read uh, the finale by the time you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and check out the interview. They, they, there is... A few preview pages. What constitutes a, uh, a three-page preview of um, of this final issue, and uh, Brubaker's quite coy about what what the finale entails. Quite coy about uh, Dylan's death, which we'll be getting into um, in reviewing issue 19, and about whether um, the antagonistic demon is, is really real. Um, they also allude to the new project you know it's about to be announced and and basically it was announced at the same time that the interview was being published um that's the other big news is my heroes have always been junkies and i i am absolutely positive that at some point i will say cowboys instead of junkies because of the the song made famous by uh, by willie nelson um but you know uh Included in Images September solicitations, but Advance solicited for October, October 10th specifically. Um, My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies is the next project from Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. It's um, their first original graphic novel, so it's not being released in monthly issues and then then subsequently collected. Um, It's just going to come out as a graphic novel. Um, it's going to come out as a 72-page um, hardcover on October 10th uh, for um, $17 um, retail, and in the press release for it, also at imagecomics.com and repeated at Sean Phillips' uh, blog, is that it's being described as, as a romance comic and a crime story. So it's their take on the romance comic, which I I've know that um, – there have been, you know, rumbles about them getting around to doing a ro- romance comic at some point. Well, that point is now, and um, I, we have seen on Twitter that the colors for this issue, well, that the artwork will be by, uh, by Sean Phillips on paper so he's going back to paper for this project um, when most of his recent work has been digital. And then the colors for this project won't be by uh, the, their uh, regular their new regular uh, Betty Brightwiser. instead it will be by Sean Phillips and his son Jacob Phillips so um, And then the other thing mentioned um, on Twitter just mentioned which which is I think one reason why I think my be sick the the silver lining, being a, a somewhat late recording, is that we get these these sort of late breaking news items, is that this upcoming final issue of Killer Be Killed twenty, will also include a teaser of uh, My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies, and if it's if it's like what they've done in the past, it'll be, was a two three four page little mini comic, uh, setting setting the scene. So um, what it is is to describe it is uh, from the press release is ever since the death of her junkie mother, Ellie has been obsessed with famous drug addicts. Those tragic artistic souls drawn to needles and pills have been her angels and idols. But when Ellie lands in an upscale rehab clinic where nothing is what it appears to be, she'll find another more dangerous romance and find out how easily drugs and murder go hand in hand which is very intriguing stuff. And then the final bit of news uh, circles around this uh, this new release. Um, my heroes have always been junkies. And then what, what I think we've already announced, or already has been announced, the, the one-volume trade paperback collection for uh, The Fade Out, which will also be coming out October or November, but hasn't been officially solicited yet, at uh, Sean Phillips Big Cartel, um, store online, you can purchase prints for the cover art, either a print for the uh, the the fade out single, single volume uh, trade, or the cover art for My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies. And in, in the case of the latter, you can get it in one of two um, two variations, either with or without uh, the credits at Brew Baker and Sean Phillips. Yeah, and
0: that the, that was very interesting in that um, CBR interview that. You know, when Sean announced that he was going to be drawing on paper for for the next book, so presumably there could be maybe some at some point there may be some original art available from um, this uh, this original graphic novel if if he decides to sell some because he would actually have a physical um, copy of the original art. So yeah, that was that was an interesting piece of news for sure. And then the last thing that's kind of cool is uh, just uh, by chance uh, the. Uh, you know, the last issue of Killer Be Killed is coming, yeah, June 27th. And so that will also, that should coincide with uh, our 25th episode of the podcast. So again, obviously we don't do these podcasts super frequently, but, you know, 25 is 25. So that's kind of cool that they uh, coincide.
1: And, and I appreciate their, their planning like that. That's that's pretty nice of them. So.
0: <laughs> it really was. It really was for them to, to dictate the, the scheduling based on our 25th episode. Well, shall we dive into uh, "Killer Be Killed
1: 19? Yes, yes. Um, and uh, originally described in the solicits as the finale to the uh, the fourth arc, and then we saw in the solicits that number twenty is the finale to the whole thing. So, I was wondering whether this would end. This issue uh, would end. With an actual conclusion or yet another cliffhanger, and you know maybe maybe it, this would be the end of an arc and, and twenty would be a coda. I nope, we have another cliffhanger, and this this was a great issue. It was it was action packed. It was it was a mini action movie. It was nice.
0: It was full of even Bruce Willis style one liners. You know there for a, for a good portion of it, um, and yeah, just a really really powerhouse ending. Um, for sure, that we will dive into. Of course, we'll give our, our spoiler warning for the issue. You should definitely read number 19 before listening to this podcast as we're going to dive into uh, any and all details from the comic. Um, yeah, it starts off, you know, just a, a great cover. Um, of you know On the cover, we've kind of got this impressionistic image of Dylan firing his shotgun. He's got his hands hanging free from a straitjacket. With just this uh, crazed expression on his face, so that kind of does set you up for for the action that's to come um, in the comic. Uh, the issue opens. We're uh, back to uh, Lily Sharp, and she is trying to fight her way through an epic blizzard to make it to the mental hospital to to talk to Dylan about her suspicions. So it picks up right where the last issue. Um, left off, yep. and, and and it
1: apparently alludes to th- the real world blizzard of this this past year. I'm not sure if the the timing would actually um, line up if if you know you looked carefully enough in terms of counting the days and weeks. But it may have been in reference to the um, the the January blizzard. You know, uh, uh, went from January 2nd to January 6th that hit basically the entire Eastern Seaboard, had upwards of two feet. Falling uh, in some places, in New York City had 30 mile per hour winds, 10 inches in Central Park, and yeah, it was. It, I I don't know what the the um, I guess the the causality is whether. You know, Brubaker was inspired by the news, you know him living on the west coast, but seeing all the the, the, the news about the, the, the blizzard and oh, I'm probably going to use that, or just fleshing out and adding to the reality that there was always going to be this, this big snowstorm at the, uh, toward the end of the story. But hey, there's a real snowstorm I can I can hook into. So
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. And I hadn't thought about that in terms of referencing, possibly referencing a real um, weather event. Yeah, so Lily Sharp, you know, has to make it to the mental hospital to talk to Dylan about these suspicions that she has. And uh, this the weather leads Dylan to go off on a tangent. So we're getting Dylan's narration during this, this these opening pages. He kind of goes off on a tangent for two pages of text in the sidebar um, about, you know, basically what it boils down to. He's kind of just doing a run-through of the divisive political issues of the day and kind of boiling that down to the real war between what he talks about wealth and accountability Um, And so that's where we're at in the opening. And there's a a quick note on the art. Pretty maniacal
1: raving too, on his point. Yeah,
0: he's fired up. He's fired (laughs) up at the beginning of this for sure. And there's just a nice thing in the art that I took note of. It There's a little montage of Lily in the snow and at her house watching the blizzard outside. And then we get an establishing shot of the Serenity Oaks Hospital and then Dylan in his cell peering out at the same storm. So it kind of creates a nice continuity, I think, between these two characters um, in their different locales, but they're both sitting there watching the snow from
1: from their various locations, and kind of set yep. you up for the issue. And it, and it shows both locations: um, her her house, and then and then the uh, institution. And I think this is you know it's very early in the issue. It's the first um, full two pages side by side. This is the only time in this entire issue where we have um, the 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 sidebar narrations. Um, which have been kind of a a hallmark of this entire series and this time actually the the one with um the institution you can actually see a, see uh the a, a tree you know a bare tree the the um the the leafless limbs um hanging over into the um into that sidebar but these have traditionally been been um moments where that have been inviting the reader to to slow down and basically enjoy the art and chew on the uh, on the narration. In this case, um, uh, Dylan's diatribe, you know, the whole thing. You know, the, this big blizzard, it's global warming. You know, if there's smoke, then then there's fire. If there's no smoke, that's proof that the fire is really well hidden. You know, the the sort of conspiracy minded. But but this is the only time we have this sort of contemplative reflective uh, scene with these white sidebars after this things start going very fast you know when when there isn't action there's tension because you know it's coming and this 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 is you know with the snowstorm it's the literal calm before the storm so
0: yeah it'll be interesting to see if that the the sidebar text if that style continues into um, The original graphic novel, because, yeah, like you said, it has been it has been something they've consistently relied on. I think I think it's been in every issue of Killer Be Killed, if not every one, almost every one. It's certainly um, been there
1: from the beginning. I think it's been in every issuing. The, the, the one I'd have to look would be Kiro's, But I think, yeah, I think there's been at least a page or two. Where they really draw the reader to the art and and let the reader take the time with take their take his time with the narration. So yeah,
0: no, I and I yeah, I personally like it and I wouldn't want to see an entire an entire comic set up that way, um, but I like them using it sparsely like they've been doing. So that, that will be interesting to see if it if it continues on into um, the original graphic novel. And so, yeah, Lily's dealing with this weather, this uh, significant blizzard event, and doesn't notice it because of the storm, but she is uh, being followed in her car by another car with uh, four Russian gangsters in it. So, of course, we have this Russian mob plot coming to a head as well. And uh, Dylan talks about his last few weeks at the hospital and how once he got his medication switched, he began to convince himself that there had never been a demon in the first place and that the whole thing was, was due to his subconscious. And he does reveal that Kira has been, uh, and I quote, visiting a lot and that they were making plans for when he got out of the hospital. So they're on good terms. Um, He, he mentioned, he alludes to the fact that, Hey, I realize we're never going to end up together, um, but we both, you know, care deeply for each other. And she has been visiting him a lot in the hospital.
1: And I'm glad that we, that we see her again. again. I'm glad that the demon is mentioned again. Um, It's just, you know, now that we know that, that, uh, the end is near for the series if not you know if the the character's fate is still up in the air um, it's it's good to see that these recurring themes and characters are be are being carried through to to the um the last issue or in this case the the um uh the next to last issue the penultimate issue as you described it
0: and just another note on the art uh you know there's a There's a thing I noticed on page seven. Don't know if there's anything behind it, necessarily a rationale behind it. Um, But there are three shots in a row. There are two of Dylan and Kira at a table facing each other and then a close-up on Dylan's face. And just something I took note of, Dylan's face in all three images uh, is drawn with a high level of detail and shadows. You know, he's kind of got some stubble, um, while Kira's face is drawn in a much different style. Her face is drawn with way less detail, you know, looks very unblemished and kind of flat. Um, and I'm not necessarily describing it very well, but if you look at that page, the difference in styles between the two characters is striking. I mean, they they look like they were drawn, like they're almost two different mediums or at two different times and then kind of assembled together. Or they Um,
1: inhabit two different spaces, which...
0: Yeah, and that came up later because if you compare the similarities, Dylan and Lily Sharp are drawn in a very similar style, whereas Dylan and Kira are not. And so I didn't know if that was you know, maybe the way that Sean Phillips sees Lily Sharp's character as an equal to Dylan in the whole scope of the story and maybe not Kira, or, you know, I may be thinking way too much into that. But it is, I think there is a definite difference if you look at that. Um, whereas, you know, like I said, Dylan and Lily Sharp, it appears to be, I mean, it looks it looks like the same approach, whereas Dylan and Kira does not.
1: And the thing that I would point out above everything else in the details would be... Um... Look at the, the, the hair, for instance. Yeah, it's significant. Yeah, a lot more, a lot more simplified, and just a few br- brush strokes from from the uh, from uh, Sean's digital inks for, for Kira, from the hair to the hands to the, the 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 facial expression, especially. Yeah, like you say, not in comparison, not only to, to Dylan, but to uh, to the Detective Sharp.
0: And we get some interesting, you know, we get some interesting lines from Dylan as he's kind of breaking down his frame of mind at this time. And he says, uh, at night I'd lie in bed and try to think of better ways to do my vigilante work because, as we all know by now, I wasn't going to stop killing bad people anytime soon. Uh, So this is the frame of mind that Dylan is in, and at this time he's told he has a visitor. So a nurse comes, approaches him in the hospital, says he has a visitor. Um, he initially assumes that it's Kira, and he's surprised that, hey, why would Kira drive through this horrible blizzard to come see me, um, but realizes quickly that his visitor is not Kira, but uh, Detective Lily Sharp. And so Lily and uh, Dylan's conversation begins with some some more of the uh, Jonathan Demme-style close-ups on each character's face, which, again, ha- we've seen several times throughout. Um, this this uh, this book, *Kill or Be Killed*. That's a, a something they've relied on a lot. Is these really close-up focused, um, extreme close-ups on facial features of characters as they're talking to each other, and they're usually isolated in a frame
1: each time. And you're you're thinking by referencing Demi, you you, you are you thinking of like um, *Silence of the Lambs* in particular, or? Yeah,
0: I mean, *Silence of the Lambs* is the most obvious example, but honestly, you can see it through a lot of his work, like um he does it in Philadelphia a lot as well but silence of the lambs is definitely the the primary example when you first if you watch that scene where you know clarice starling first talks to first meets the Hannibal Lecter character i mean they do it repeatedly it's this um it's not the normal over the shoulder shot that is kind of the industry norm in filmmaking but it's
1: these isolated shots just of their face alone well I, um i i i think it's a good comparison not only in terms of the visuals, but, but thematically, you know, the female detective and the, uh, the psycho serial killer. Um, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't actually thought about it in those terms. Well, and, and, in this point, I, I, I would, I think it's a funny thing to suggest that the next to last issue is a great standalone issue because it's definitely not, you know, it, it definitely builds on everything that's come before, but it, it's, it works very well as its own, Little chapter as it's al- almost a little action movie set piece, starting off with the confrontation between the between the the intelligent but very academic cop and the the psycho serial killer who is at least in his own mind uh, a supervillain. He's already and at least mentally he's been monologuing um, about oh what was it the the. The raving about uh, wealth versus accountability, and he's already, like you said, he's he's planning on what he's doing to get get out, and he shows up here, um, and you know he's calm, he's in control of himself, you know throughout this this interview slash you know this informal interrogation, he he realizes he's he's. Realizes that he's not being arrested and realizes what that means. You know, he he is in control of the situation throughout most of this issue. He he has become the vigilante and is no longer you know Dylan the uh, the grad student. And I do like the scene. I like I I like the, the the setting of it. You know, the the interrogation room, which you know I've seen seen a few times. You know, Gotham Central and police procedurals, but but. Behind the um, the 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 shots, you know, where we're focusing on the uh, on the two characters, we do have these motivational posters that you would see in a psychiatric uh, hospital, which, you know, thrive or su- survive. You know, uh, it's okay to ask for help, and the sort of things that are actually actually useful. And 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 if if somebody asks, you know, where I where I where I stumbled across the idea that it's okay to ask for help. I should probably not tell him that it's, you know, a comic book about a serial killer.
0: So, yeah, this is in this room. That, like you said, it is a strong scene um, with Dylan and Lily Sharp in this conference room. So she confronts him about, you know, the possibility of there being two vigilante killers, um, reveals that she has talked to both Dylan's mother and Dr. Ridley, who told her that Dylan was convinced he was the vigilante a few months ago. And I thought it was smart of Ed to, you know, that seemed unrealistic that the doctor would reveal that. But again, Ed addressed that quickly, you know, because Dylan caught that too and said, there's no way Dr. Ridley would have told you that. And then she said, well, actually your mom signed off on, you know, basically your records being released because she was worried about you. Uh, But yeah, Lily quickly lays her cards out on the table. You know, she says she knows about the gun. She knows about the typewriter. uh, She knows about Dylan's dad's artwork in the attic. And is also pinning the death of the hospital orderly Perry on Dylan. So she's, you know, she's figured out pretty much everything at this point, um, and obviously gets Dylan's attention quickly. And he reveals in his narration that yeah, Lily has him dead to rights. But then he realizes, you know, what? I haven't actually been arrested, and the justice system is so messed up that you know maybe I'm in okay shape. And so he's he's feel he kind of gains this confidence. He's getting ready to walk out, and then she kind of she drops the bombshell on him and says why did you shoot your drug dealer and so this really you know and then she pulls out the picture of dylan at rex's funeral and that kind of is the is what finally makes him crack and he just begins to confess everything to her about all of his crimes at this mention of rex yeah i mean
1: it's 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 a wonderful you know parrying back and forth dodging and and you know it's very professionally done in terms of 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 Detective Sharp knowing what she's doing and coming out blow after blow, Dylan handling them surprisingly well. I you know, we see him now at full maturity of what he's doing, uh whether or not what he's doing is is something to yeah, aspire and his head, to. But
0: Yeah, and his head's cleared because he's he's no longer taking heavy pharmaceuticals, I don't think. So yep. um he definitely seems to have a clearer and sharper mind in this in this issue. Yep. And then the
1: uh then you know, she had the ace up in the uh, up the sleeve. the The picture of him at Rex's funeral. And why'd you kill Frex? Rex? Yeah, um, you you said he basically tells her everything. Here's the question I do have a question about that. Does she tell? He tells her everything about being the vigilante, about being the serial killer. Presumably, who she, who he killed and how and and that sort of thing. Does he bring up the demon?
0: Oh, that's a good question because they kind of gloss over that scene. You know, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. The only thing spe- explicitly that I remember them talking about is the uh, the first kill and then she found the, you know, the child sex ring. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the only maybe specific crime they talk about. So that's a good question whether the demon because they you know and then they get interrupted. So it's hard to know where they where that conversation would have gone because they get interrupted when the four Russians move into the hospital. Yeah.
1: My my thought is because at this point Dylan and, and I still think it's an open question and if you look at that uh, comic book resources interview um Brewbaker Baker is not only coy about how the cliffhanger in this issue is resolved but but is coy about the demon as well. I still think it's an open question whether the demon is real, and I would – my guess would be real just, just because of of how he's affected multiple members of the same family. Um, yeah. But at this point, Dylan's mm-hmm. very strongly convinced that it was a delusion, was a hallucination. I don't think he brings brings up the demon. I think he, ta- he, he he takes accountability, he takes responsibility, he takes um what have, what's the word I'm looking for? ownership. He takes ownership of becoming the vigilante completely.
0: So she may have heard about the demon indirectly from Dr. Ridley. Um, but but yeah, I, I think you're right that at this point, you know Dylan is just attributing all of his actions to himself and, and no external forces working on him. But I thought the dialogue was really good uh, at this point between Dylan and Lily when they kind of go into their debate about, you know, she's saying, well, how, you know, what makes you have the right to be the jury and executioner? And then he's kind of going off on the the traditional law enforcement approach and saying, you know, you guys don't actually make a difference. You show up too late. Um, He's, you know, Lily says, why are you the one who decides the difference between a good guy and a bad guy? Dylan says the world went insane before I did. I'm just adapting to the new reality. I thought that dialogue was was really really well done by Ed, um, because it's really at the heart of what the entire book is about, and you know both Lily and Dylan are taking these completely different sides to the argument, but they both make valid points and are convincing. So you know that's that's good writing.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's not only uh, good writing; it's it's um it's amazing what this sort of writing arguments that it echoes. It's number one the whole idea that we all know right from wrong. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that the the famous Christian apologist and intellectual and novelist C.S. Lewis. That's a, a point he would make. If you read Mirror Christianity*, he, his his first premise is that we all are, you know, except for the the, the very young, the very mentally ill, or the, the 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 you know, all of us who are adults, who are mature, who aren't. You know, we are all aware of the moral law, and that points to something, you know, greater than the, the the material universe. That he that Dylan would point to the same thing that we all know right from wrong. That's that's an intriguing echo. And then he turns around and and you know the the, the other echo is you know, from from um, Christopher Nolan's uh, The Dark Knight. You know, is that that. Uh, the the interrogation with the Joker. I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, for for an interrogation where where and uh, you know going all the way from the beginning. I mean, he is the protagonist, the the narrator. He is the character who we're walking with, whose whose thoughts we're we're privy to. We're walking with him this entire journey. But but really this. You know, like I'm saying that this this is sort of a self-contained action movie, is that this is the villain, this is the 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 young Hannibal Lecter uh, of the piece, and for him to to make arguments that echo C.S. Lewis and then echo the, um, echo uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, that's that's fun. <laughs>
0: it's just it's been consistent through this book. There's been this confusing line about protagonist you know, heroes versus villains. And who is the protagonist? I mean, there's times when Dylan is a sympathetic character, but then there's lots of times when he is not. Lily has been a sympathetic character. So at some point has this comic shifted to where she's now the protagonist? You know, she hasn't been in it enough. to. She's not really the protagonist because she just hasn't been in it all that
1: much. Right. Um, But there's always been a
0: confusing line the whole time, I think, and and that's why it's been
1: compelling. And Dylan may well be or or apparently is not only the tragic um, antihero, Um, but you know, more so than, than, uh, a lot of the, the, I guess the only comparison would be last of the innocent is where we see the protagonist go this far to, you know, to the dark side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this issue, this, this specific issue, I think he is more sympathetic than a lot of other issues. You know, he's kind of, he definitely takes on the hero role at this point, you know, now that the, when the comic shifts into action movie mode, um, with, the four, with the three Russians storming the hospital, I mean, he definitely takes on the hero role, and he seems honorable. He's worried about other
1: people. But the flip side is uh, the only reason he's so successful in this issue is because of the skills and experience and confidence that he's a, a attained, not by playing the hero but by playing the, the vigilante serial killer.
0: So, yeah, the, the three, three of the four Russians um, now head into the hospital. They're heavily armed and the driver stays behind at the car. Uh so the lights suddenly go out in the hospital. Um Dylan and Lily first attribute it to the blizzard and think that the power's just, you know, they've had a power outage, but but we know as the readers that it's the Russian mobsters. So they start to hear gunfire. Um these Russian guys are just brutally gunning down anyone in their path. And Dylan quickly realizes that you know, he puts two and two together pretty quick and says, "Hey, you must have told somebody about this and they've they have a connection to to the police." They followed Lily to the hospital. Um, so then Dylan and Lily become these unlikely allies as they have to partner up to face this threat and kind of you know get out of there alive. Um, so Dylan takes out one of the Russians with a fire extinguisher, um, all while still wearing his uh, his mental hospital slash prison slippers, um, if you if you notice that. So I'm sure he could quietly sneak around the hospital in those slippers.
1: The baby blue fluffy slippers, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Emphasized keeps with coloring too, I think. So. Yeah, he keeps
0: them on the whole time. Um, so he pick, he then picks up the gun from the Russian he's just taken out. So now he's armed. Um, And this is where he kind of goes into action hero mode, starts to get arrogant about how he is saving the cop and getting them out of this jam. And that was, like, the first sign for me reading it that, oh, man, this is not going to end well. You know, that that minute when he kind of got this tinge of arrogant, you know, attitude about, you know, how he was completely in control of the situation, that was the first sign that, okay, this isn't going to end well. Um so they come across Dr.
1: Ridley's body.
0: He's what, lying the, uh, dead the, the, the,
1: um, the narration, I'd, I'd be lying if I said, said this wasn't a great wo- moment for me. Yeah, that's when I
0: knew, I was like, okay, something bad's going to happen to him. Um, but you have to admit,
1: up to that point, I mean, he, 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 <laughs> he was playing very well at a stealth mode video game. It was, you know, we can't go out the front, we need a pass card, we need a gun.
0: Um, yeah, and he even he even gets into that. Like I said, he kind of takes the honorable path. When she's ready to leave, they have a path to get out, and he says, "I'm staying in. I'm going back." You know, he, they're taking out people, and uh, innocent people are being hurt because of me. Yeah, um, and so he's headed back in, and then of course she stays with him.
1: And even the little things, even the little things of of knowing that a Russian is around the corner because he's calmly walking and not running away. The cold analytical part is like, well. It, it, <laughs> As much as, as that hubris is a warning sign, he kind of earned it, at least. <laughs>
0: no, you're right. And then they kind of contrast, you know, Dylan's skill and efficiency at this. Um, they contrast that with with Lily, who is inexperienced and, and admits that she has never shot anyone. Um, and then the two of them team up to uh, to distract and shoot the third Russian. And so, you know, Lily is understandably, you know, shaken up about this, and you know, they pretty much is in shock over this. So the two then head out to outside to find Lily's car in the parking lot. Um, and Dylan doesn't consider the possibility that there could be a fourth guy outside that stayed with the car. And this, you know, of course, leads us to the final page, which, you know, we've kind of alluded to is just a, a true powerhouse of a page. Um, the last Russian gets the jump on them, and he and Dylan fire at each other kind of simultaneously, and both presumably have kill shots, with each taking a bullet in the chest. And uh, the narration on the final page is, you know, quite simply says, but anyway, that's how I died. And I want to give a, a big shout out to uh, uh, Pete Taylor, um, who is an artist in his own right, um, and somebody else that we correspond uh, with via Twitter, who's a fan of the, of the podcast. And he himself is featured on, he's a contributor on the Comic Art Podcast. But he successfully predicted this angle of, of Dylan delivering his narration post mortem. Um, there at the end of May, he uh, he reached out to me on Twitter and said, been thinking about the narration. Do you think it's being delivered post-mortem like in Sunset Boulevard? And I retweeted Pete's message the next day and acknowledged that, you know, that that's an interesting, incredible theory. I could, you know, I hadn't actually thought about that exact angle, but I said I could see it going in that direction. And then um, number 19 dropped on May 30th, and Ed and Sean seemingly confirmed what Pete was speculating That Dylan is in fact now dead but then you know once that CBR interview came out they somewhat teased the possibility that maybe Dylan is still alive so it's not a foregone conclusion at this point that his his injuries are fatal but we will find out shortly and
1: and yeah and in that interview we have essentially the three-page preview and it's still at the scene of the shooting um and Dylan is still narrating, and this is a shocking. This is a shocking scene, especially for the last page of the next-to-last issue. But this isn't. I think the um, uh, this certainly isn't the first time that the narrator has been um, has been this kind. Of, you know, provably vulnerable to 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 fatal wounds. You know, before the end of the uh, the end of the story. You know. You read uh, uh, "Fatal." <clears throat> the the narrator was seemingly killed and then magically brought back to life for a for a fate that was probably probably worse than death. So, so um, even in the, the preview, it's not confirmed. So so here's the question: Is he really dead? If he's not dead, how does he get out of being dead? Um, you know the the similarity to that scene in "Fatal." Which is the the other you know supernatural series that um that this team has done makes me wonder, you know if the demon is real, maybe you know another deal with the demon maybe with with Dylan, or um there's a, a movie that mystery Science Theater roundly you know mocked were you know deservedly uh from my, I, I believe the seventies uh touch of Satan where you know this guy this this college age kid makes a deal with the devil to to save his girlfriend when he finds out that his girlfriend is a long lived witch would would the reverse happen here maybe would lily make a deal with the demon and i which i i i don't for for two characters that just met i don't i don't see but otherwise i'm I don't know whether he gets out of this, and I don't know how he does if he does.
0: It seems like the tidiest way for this to all wrap up in one issue would be for him, in fact, to be dead. But um, again, like you kind of mentioned, if the demon's going to show back up, which I tend to think he will, they've dedicated so much page space to the demon – Well, I have a hard time believing that that's just going to be like, oh well, that was just in his subconscious. Like, I feel like it has to come into play in this last issue. Yeah,
1: and 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 not only um, so much real estate, but so much important real estate. Is that this this has been an ongoing series, but it but there have been more more arcs. You know, the the, um, um, I did say Fatal earlier, not the fade out, didn't I?
0: Yeah, you said Fatal.
1: Good. It, it, uh, but going back to say to the fade out, that's one complete story that was somewhat arbitrarily broken up into three four issue arcs, Act one, Act, two, Act three, which they, they don't really read as acts. They really do read as one one giant novel. In this case, I think the, 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 tr- the trades more um, more appropriately collect actual arcs. And at the end of each arc, there's the demon on a full page spread for, for for arc one, arc two, and arc three. You know, the, him, dis- uh, uh, Dylan discovering that the, the demons in his dad's artwork, and discovering that the, that that um, the artwork is in the um, in that uh, uh, gallery, and then discovering that um, you know, Kira turns around. When he thinks everything's solved, Kira turns around, and then instead of seeing Kira's face, he sees the demon's face. Yeah, you know the the interview mentioned um, uh, cover topics about not just about this series that's wrapping up, but you know visiting this this world, um, both in a, in adapting this this story into a film, you know, with uh, some of the creators behind behind the John Wick movies are adapting this, but also asking would would um, Brew Baker and Phillips return to this to this setting, to this world um, in another comic series. And uh, Brew Baker said, you know that he learned uh, never, say never. Um if he were to return, um whether Dylan lives or dies, a real demon would be an obvious uh, an obvious hook. For continuing the story, either continuing it forward, or one of the things that I would would love to have seen had this been a, a longer series, something longer than, than just twenty issues, is to have seen firsthand what the demon was doing in the lives of, of Dylan's um, of his father and of Dylan's um, one step brother, uh, his um, half brother. So, so that yeah, those stories can always could... be told. So.
0: I am I'm, I'm foreseeing uh an ongoing series with the demon just forcing Mason to continue to do obnoxious things once a month. Um, <laughs> I think that could be an interesting angle that they could explore. But I mean, I yeah, no, I'm legitimately uh really excited to read number 20 and then uh you know bringing our 25th episode to you where we'll kind of break down uh not just Killer Be Killed number 20 but just kind of the series as a whole and where it fits in the uh and the Brewbaker and Phillips catalog. All right, well, we will kind of shift gears here, and I know uh, Bubba's got a monthly recommendation for, uh, for this episode, and I'm excited to hear it. It's on my list of things
1: to read, but I have yet to read it, so take it away, Bubba. Absolutely. Yeah, I have a, a very, very strong recommendation this month. It's uh, for the, uh, the, the graphic novel, um, Lawrence Block's Eight Million Ways to Die, adapted by John K. Snyder III, uh, released by IDW Publishing just this week. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, the silver lining of me being sick gave me the chance to to uh, get this book to track it down at one of the my local stores. They held on to it for me um, and got it Wednesday lunchtime and and read it that afternoon absorbed it devoured it and then the, then enjoyed it so much passed it along to the missus. she she liked it though though she admits that it it's it's a little dark it is um, but this this is a strong recommendation um, a very different art style but um, would say that, that it still has the same kind of alchemy. As um, Darwin Cook's adaptation of Richard Stark's Parker books, this is John K. Snyder's adaptations of Lawrence Block's uh, Matthew Scudder. So, um, I think we've mentioned the Parker books in the the past, particularly on the uh, the um, episode centering on on Darwin Cook. But um, Parker was was on the one side of the law. They this sort of um, not sort of, this quite amoral-driven, professional um, master thief. Matthew Scudder is this um, very flawed, very human ex-cop, um, an ex-cop in part because, uh, uh, because during a shootout, one ricochet went bad and, and, and um, hit a, a, uh, an innocent civilian, a, a kid, uh, fatally wounding the kid, and um, and basically, Scudder became an uh, quit the force and became an alcoholic because of that. So, um, which all of all of which is preface to to this novel and and really to it's the backstory to the first few um, Scudder books. Um, this book is seriously. About as good as the Parker books, and it's almost as flawless. I've like noticed one, I think, I think one typo, just like with the uh, the Parker books. Uh, Darwin Cook misspelled um, the other, uh, a, a secondary character, um, Grofield, uh, who comes up in other novels. So you know, they, if that's if that's the 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 thing you got to complain about, you you're hitting some pretty high marks, and and this so. I really, really like Lawrence Block as a writer. Um, he's been one of the more popular uh, living uh, novelists to be published by Hard Case Crime again and again. And I like his crime fiction, his nonfiction, his short stories, his essays. Um, but I haven't read a whole lot of his Matthew Scudder uh, mysteries. And they are, they are true. They're, they're true mystery books. You know, there's a, there's a crime that happens early on that has to be solved. And um, the one book of his that I did read, uh, or the one Scudder book of his that I read, was *A Walk Among the Tombstones*, which was re- originally released in '92. It was adapted into in 2014, uh, written in the film written and ad- directed by Scott Frank, starring uh, Liam Neeson as uh, as Matthew Scudder, and. As a uh, as a tie-in, Hard Case Crime released a um, a movie tie-in mass mass um, mass market trade paperback or mass market paperback, and read the 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 novel. Really, really enjoyed it. Dark and uh, dark enough that you know. Yeah, I ain't sending my no- that novel my wife's way. I, I I know what her limits are, and yeah. Um, but really, really just uh, engrossing. And if not hypnotizing, it really it really draws the reader in. And the movie was good, really good. Casting was great, but you know as, a, as an adaptation, you have to make changes. And the changes kind of fell a little flat for me that there was a cliched action ending compared to the novel, and there were, were flourishes in terms of a, of film, you know, editing juxtapositions in terms of musical choices that that I didn't think worked. By comparison, this this adaptation of Eight Million, eight million Ways to Die, the, the flourishes, strengthen the story rather than take away from it. Um, I, I don't want to spoil anything too much about it. Um, Except that to say that you know the, the the novel originally came out in 1982, was set contemporaneously in uh, New York City in the early 80s, and really captures the look and feel of a very dangerous New York in in the early 1980s. Even captures um, some of the, the uh, feel of the comics of that of that era. I saw a um, uh, online I saw a reference to that the artwork was kind of reminiscent of, of either Frank Miller's Ronin or Eastman and Laird's Ninja Turtles, you know, the, the original hardcore teenage mutant ninja turtles and there are moments where, yeah, I can see it. So so in terms of both its setting and its comic style, it does a very good job of of hailing back to to the source era. But the artistic flourishes, um, the one thing I the one I would point out with that wouldn't spoil anything. Is um, single circles are being used on occasion to um, to to represent drinks. So his client comes in, uh, orders a coffee. Uh, coffee, I think, was sweet and cream, and he orders it black. And then while while they're ordering it, and you, you just see two circles, you know, offset, one next to each other, one. Black coffee, the other, you know, clearly the color of, of coffee with cream. Later on, you see the circle of uh, the color of bourbon, you know, the, the, the drink that keeps tr- drawing, um, drawing Scudder back to, to the booze and to, to becoming a blackout drunk and becoming basically a danger to himself. And every time he's being drawn back to it, you know, that just small little symbol, the, the, the bourbon-shaped circle – is you can be used very effectively to, to to convey an awful lot without any without any words. Um, it's uh, a single graphic novel, so it's not you know it's not just like the Parker books. It's it's direct uh, release as a graphic novel rather than um, serialization. Um, it's condensing what was then. Uh, Lawrence Block's longest novel of more than a thousand, uh, more than a hundred thousand words. It's condensing it into a um, a story of about 140 pages, but I don't think it loses anything. Ha- you know, I have not read this particular novel, but I've read enough Lawrence Block, um, and, and from reading, you know, particularly Walk Among the Tombstones, to say pretty confidently that this book. Not only perfectly captures the voice, which is an easy enough thing to do with with carefully chosen narration, you know, uh, first-person narration, uh, uh, as the uh, the original novel did, but it also covers the the mood uh, of the the Scudder novels and, and of Lawrence Block's writing, and really covers um, both the mystery not selling short the clues and and the brutality of uh, of of the crimes that take place and the the personal struggles that um, that Scudder goes through you know coming to grips with his uh, with his addictions Um, the 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 Summary online at IDW's site is that in crime ravaged 1980s New York, a troubled ex-cop turned unlicensed detective takes on his most dangerous case, hunting down a serial killer hitman and ultimately coming face to face with his deadliest enemy, himself, in John K. Snyder III's graphic novel adaptation of the celebrated story by Lawrence Block. And I've got a feeling that this adaptation is going to be equally celebrated. This is, this is good stuff. I, I – I, I would not be surprised to see it nominated, you know, as an adaptation for next year's Eisners. I I want to see these guys working together again. I want to see another Scudder novel in this format. This is great stuff. So a very strong, um, a very strong un unalloyed recommendation for Eight Million Ways to Die. Um, the uh, the uh, IDW Adaptation by John K. Snyder of Lawrence Block's uh, Matthew Scudder novel.
0: Yeah, great recommendation, Bubba. And, and yeah, props to you for reading and recommended a bo- recommending a book within 48 hours. So that's that's pretty impressive.
1: You know, if you've been with us for, we're, what, at two dozen episodes now? If you've been with us for the duration, this is definitely up your alley. If you're a fan of Brubaker and Phillips, this is up your alley.
0: And I had a recommendation that I was contemplating getting into on this episode, but... Um, I kinda went down a rabbit hole on it and I feel like I need to spend a little bit more time on it because it it's worthy of, of some more time and research. So I, I will assemble that for a for a future episode. But yeah, I think we'll we'll kind of wrap things up there. Um we have like I said, we're we're looking forward to the the grand finale of Killer Be Killed. Um we will be here next month to kinda talk about that and then we're looking forward to we're gonna have a couple months here over the summer um, where Baker and Phillips are not releasing new material, so uh, Bubba and I are both looking forward to kind of diving into their back catalog and kind of doing some more, some more episodes that are, um, you know, not following the exact format of just talking about one specific book. So we've we've got lots of different ideas that we're tossing around. So we hope you uh, stick around and and give it a
1: listen. And we'll have to have to figure out you know what to do with ourselves when we're not getting a uh, a monthly fix.
0: Yeah, yeah, we got a couple of months, but definitely we're we're all looking forward to that October tenth date, um, with the the original graphic novel release. So that will be uh, that will be exciting times for sure. Um, as always, we uh, encourage you to look at a, give a listen to our past episodes. They are all available undertow.podbean.com. Um, they're all available on iTunes if you're if you're an Apple user. Um, you can reach out to us undertowpodcast at gmail.com or at undertowpodcast on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and we look forward to uh, kind of circling back in a few weeks' time and we will uh, break down Killer or Be Killed, uh, the final issue. So, um, this is Robert Watson and Bubba Beasley, and we will sign off for this month and we will see you on down the road. I'm
1: all washed out by the side of the road. Broken bones, Matilda left a note in the road. Saying, baby, honey, child, I love you so long, but you deserve much better than me. To watch burning all the Miles and